Welcome to Corvette Today, the podcast that talks about everything Corvette, with your host Steve Garrett, MC and DJ at one of the largest Corvette weekends in the country, Corvette Fun Fest, president of the Corvette Club of Kansas City, Missouri, and radio disc jockey at the number one radio station in Kansas City for over 40 years. Here's Steve Garrett. Hey, thanks for listening to Corvette Today, the podcast that talks about everything Corvette. I'm your host, Steve Garrett. I appreciate you tuning in. You can listen to Corvette Today on almost all podcast platforms like iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Anchor.fm, Breaker, Radio Public, Pocket Cast, Overcast, BeanPod, CastBox, TuneIn, and Stitcher. You can also listen on your smart device. Just say Alexa or Hey Google, play the podcast called Corvette Today, and you're connected. Also, visit the Corvette Today website. It's CorvetteTodayPodcast.com. You can also sign up for Corvette Today notifications, updates, and information at corvettetoday.ck.page. And don't forget, join the Corvette Today Facebook group, too. We have over 1,400 members, and I'd love to have you as a member, too. First, I'd like to thank our flagship sponsors of Corvette Today, Haltech Systems. Haltech makes the best cold air intake for your Corvette with world-class performance for your C5, C6, C7, and C8 Corvette. It's the quickest and fastest intake with no cutting or hacking. It's just plug and play and no throwing codes. Get your special Corvette Today discount of 11% off with the code CT11 online at HaltechSystems.com or call 262-965-4300. That's 11% off at H-A-L-L-T-E-C-H Systems.com or call them 262-965-4300 and get your Corvette Today discount of 11% off. Also, midenginecorvetteforum.com. If you'd like to join this new vibrant forum that focuses on the new mid-engine C8 Corvette, it's free to join this friendly community. You'll meet a lot of fellow Corvette enthusiasts like yourself at midenginecorvetteforum.com. My guest on Corvette today is one of the youngest designers ever hired by General Motors. He's designed and raced cars. He's written books and articles. He became a photojournalist capturing one of the greatest eras of motor racing history. He documented Corvette's performance history starting from its early days in the mid-50s with Briggs Cunningham at Le Mans. He's responsible for the very first drawings of the legendary C2 Corvette Stingray. He is Mr. Peter Brock. Peter, welcome to Corvette today. Guys, Steve, it's an honor to be on your show. You really know your history on Corvette, so I think we've got some good stuff to talk about. Absolutely, sir. I appreciate you taking the time to be on the podcast. Now, Peter, you were originally a race car driver. Talk about what got you into designing cars versus racing cars. Well, I'd wanted to be a race driver all my life. I mean, I started out going racing when I was with my friends when I was about 12 years old. My first job was in a little garage in the Sausalito area. And I'd ride my bike over there after school. And I was all I was doing was cleaning tools and mopping up the floor and everything. But just to be around these guys, young guys that were building and racing their cars and going with them on the weekend is what really educated me. So I had another 10 years or so before I could even think about being a driver myself because you had to be 21 years old at that time to get a license. And all that during that period of time, I realized, you know, what it cost to go racing and everything and had to have another job. 
and didn't know anything about design at all and was sort of looking in the engineering direction. So I applied and went to Stanford. It was while I was there that I heard about the Art Center College of Design in Southern California that taught automobile design. I had no idea what that would be like. But anyway, I drove down there on an Easter vacation and you know, walked in the back door and with the students and sat down and listened to a couple of classes for a couple of hours. And, and I knew that's where I wanted to be. That's really cool because getting into that Art Center College of Design there in Pasadena is a really big deal. And I'm sure back in those days it was too. Getting into school was not that easy, was it? No, they want people who, as I learned later, it's a school for professionals, for people who've already been in the business for a couple of years, and they go back there to uh, polish their skills. And if they're looking for young guys, they want people that have got college education or some background or something on it. And of course, I had none of that at all. And so, but that's where I was going to go to school and they weren't going to keep me out. That's wonderful. (laughs) Now, I know that you always targeted and wanted to work at General Motors. Talk about the story, how you transitioned into General Motors, because you started at a very young age and then were at like 19 years old, hired into the GM Design Center. Yes, as I said, I started out going to Stanford for a year. I did all right academically, but there was no passion to it at all. And my love of cars and racing was such that I went down to Art Center and fell in love with the place and realized that that was a place that I could really spend some time. So I talked my mother, who was covering my expenses to go to college at that time, and told her what I wanted to do. And she said, okay, well, you can have a year or so, and I'll get that out of your head and whatever. And the more I was there, the better I liked it. So by the time I got to the fifth semester, she just sent me a letter and said, hey, you know, I don't approve of what you're doing in your life. You're on your own. And if you ever get back to school and finish your education, you can call me again. And we never spoke again for seven years. It was a total break. Wow. And at that point, I had already got to know Chuck Jordan, who at that time, he later became vice president of styling at GM. But at that time, he was a headhunter and had come out always to always look at the eight semester students and look at their work and see who they were going to hire. And during that first five semesters, I got to talk to him and told him that my desire was to go to GM because I knew that they were working on the Corvette program. And that tied in with my love of racing. You know, when I got that letter, I uh, essentially broke (laughs) and I had to make a quick decision. So I called Chuck and kind of laid it on the line, said, hey, is there any way you can put me in? He says, I'll have an airplane ticket for you tomorrow. Wow. I flew back there and they hired me and said, you know, if you if you don't make it in six months, you're out of here. And I said, great. So I was able to stay there for quite a while. And the timing was just perfect. I mean, it, it was the greatest education a kid could have had. It was fabulous. Timing is everything, and especially in the world of automotive, isn't it, Peter? It is, and friends that help you. It never could have happened without Chuck. You know, it's interesting. Your story kind of parallels mine. I went to college, and I wanted to be a disc jockey on the radio. Yep. You know, my mom said, honey, you know, this disc jockey radio thing, it isn't a real job. Uh. I said, mom, you're killing me. Now, I didn't have the same scenario with your mom, but did you and your mom reconnect down the road, obviously? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Later, when I became, quote, successful, then she took a little pride in what I'd done and realized that created some things that were <laughs> acceptable in her world. <laughs> <laughs> she finally was had something to be proud of, didn't she, Peter? 
the thing is, she grew up with a father who was very, very involved in the automotive and aircraft business as an engineer and consequently was left on her own as a kid. And I don't think she wanted me to go in that direction at all. And he was actually a very, very influential in, in American design of engineering during World War One. He designed the actual Liberty engine that we used a lot toward the end of World War One in our aircraft. So he was a hero of mine that I didn't get to spend enough time with. Well, I understand that. I have a daughter, and I did not influence her in getting into the radio and TV industry. And thank goodness she didn't do it. She has her own career, and I'm proud of her for that. <laughs> yeah. Peter, let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about the meat of when you were at General Motors and also the legendary design of the C2 Corvette Stingray and XP87. All right. You're listening to Corvette Today, the podcast. Yogi Berra once said, if you don't know where you're going, you'll probably end up there. At True Wealth & Company, we take that to heart. See, at True Wealth & Company, we believe your retirement lifestyle travels through two doors. Door number one, the blue door, gives you more options, financial freedom. Your money outlives you. Every happiness you wish for in life is through the blue door. Door number two, the red door, is where you outlive your money. You rely on family, friends, or even the state to take care of you. At True Wealth & Company, we're not just financial planners. The best way to walk through the blue door is to have a written plan. Make a work-optional lifestyle a reality with our proprietary True Life Map formula. Look towards your future with anticipation, not apprehension. Having a rock-solid fiduciary partner like True Wealth & Company is essential to effective financial planning. There's no winging it. There's nothing left to chance. Look, we don't want you to become another Yogi Berraism. Give us a call today at 913-653-TRUE. Visit us online at retirewithtrue.com. Start your financial independence and work-optional lifestyle today. 913-653-8783. Visit us online at retirewithtrue.com. Investment advice offered through True Wealth & Company, LLC, a registered investment advisor in the state of Kansas. You're listening to the Corvette Today podcast with Steve Garrett. Thanks for listening to Corvette Today. I'm your host, Steve Garrett. My guest today is legendary Corvette designer, Peter Brock. Peter, in this segment, let's talk about the meat of what you did with the XP87 and the design of the C2. In 1957, Bill Mitchell chose your design for the new C2 Corvette, which is XP87. Tell that story about how he chose your design over everybody else's. Well, the whole Corvette program was really interesting, Steve. When I got back there, I'd gone back there because I wanted to be involved in the Corvette design world. As going in there as a, a sort of what we would call an intern designer in these days, there was very little chance that I would have gotten to go upstairs and work in the Chevrolet studio designing such a car. But in 1957 was the last year, really, of the uh, prototype Corvette that had come about as a result of Zora Duntoff telling Harley Earl that the only way to really convince the American public of the value of what he'd started in 53 with the first C1s was to build a factory racing car and go to race against Maserati and Ferrari and Jaguar and everything. Right. And consequently, they built a very, very special car called the SS Corvette. And this was a car that was done from an engineering standpoint pretty much by Zora. That car raced at Sebring in 1957 and made a huge hit as far as its appearance go from an engineering standpoint. It didn't work out too well because they didn't have enough development time on it. 
and it failed because the brakes didn't work. And Zora had been trying to convince General Motors Engineering that they had to go to disc brakes on the car because uh, they'd been invented in Europe, of course, in 55. And Jaguar had won at Le Mans for two years because of disc brakes. They were so superior. But he could not get General Motors Engineering to believe that. So they went ahead and designed the best drum brakes that they could with metallic linings and everything. Hmm. And, of course, they got the car down to Sebring. And they put the top drivers in it. They had Sterling Moss try it. They had one Fangio drive it. And they went out and drove the car. And for one lap, they could break the lap record. And at that point, the brakes were done. They'd come into the pits, and I mean, they were so overheated that if they took the wheel off and pulled the drum off, the springs had melted and the shoes actually just fell on the ground. Wow. So they knew right then, finally, the engineers had, had learned, you know, how racing was, how difficult it was, and that there was no chance the car was going to be successful. So all they could do is they started the race, and at the end of about 20 laps, they brought it in, and that was the end of the car. And soon after that, General Motors management let the word be known that the whole Corvette program had been killed. There was no point putting any more money into it. And essentially, Harley Earl's tenure at General Motors as the head of design, he'd been there since 1927, it was over, and he was turning it over to Bill Mitchell. So with the Corvette program officially being killed, there was no way that a new Corvette was going to be designed upstairs in the Chevrolet studio. Fortunately, I was downstairs in the advanced design area, and Bill Mitchell knew that all of this would blow over at some time, and he decided on his own that he was going to design a new Corvette and do all the extra things that he knew should be in the car, which Zora, of course, wanted to do as well with, you know, with the independent suspension and good brakes and a big engine and all that sort of thing. Right. So the only way that that program could ever be started was it had to be done in secret. So Bill Mitchell came down to the advanced design studio where I was working, which at that time was called advanced studio number two and walked in Coles. Of course, I'd never seen anybody that high in management at GM, and here comes GM management walking in and the persona of Bill Mitchell all by himself and sits down and says, come on over here, fellas, I want to talk to you. There were four of us in there, four interim designers, and he had just come back from the Turin show in Italy and had taken a bunch of pictures of cars over there that he thought had a lot of possibility from a styling standpoint. And one of those cars was the Disco Volante, which had been done two years earlier, actually, by Alfa Romeo. And he had pictures of, of Stanguilinis and Fiat's and a lot, all these little streamliners that had this very typical belt line all the way around the side of the car with a little aerodynamic shape over each tire. So this theme had been already been used in Europe for a couple of years and was being accepted by the public. So he laid the photographs of all these cars out and said, this is the theme that I'd like to work on and turned it over to us because Bill didn't design by himself. He was a director and that was a great director that way. He gave us the theme and tasked us to put our best work up on the wall and said he'd be back in a few days to see what we'd done. And at that point, we plastered the walls with our work, and we were pretty excited. The one thing is that blew us all away is because there was no way that we believed that we were going to be able to design the new Corvette. We thought, well, maybe what he's done is he's gone around to different studios and told everybody that. 
But actually, in order to keep the thing secret, there was no way he could do it. But we didn't know that. He was actually had given us the project. Wow. When he came back, he walked carefully around the room and looked at all the work and selected some work off the wall and said, who did this? And it, it was my work. And I raised my hand and he said, okay, now your job, he pointed to all of the rest of the guys, is to do something better than this one. <laughs> and I want you to keep going on this theme. So I was actually blown away the first of all that he accepted my work. But then he gave us a challenge on it. So when he came back again, another four or five days later, he walked around the room and he picked the sketch off the wall. And he said, who did this one? And again, I raised my hand. He says, okay, this is it. And I'm going to give you, and he pointed to me, he says, I'm going to give you the project under the studio head to lead this thing and develop this into a model. And then from there, we'll go into a full-size car. And that's exactly what happened. And at that point, he came back in and said, okay, here's what we've done. He said, you remember the SS Corvette? And of course, I'd gone down to Sebring in 57 to see the car run and knew it very well. And I said, yeah, yeah, that's, that's great. Because I knew that the car had been designed on a 300 SL chassis. That was the only way they could do it quickly is that they bought a 300 SL, stripped the body off it. And then Zora changed the rear suspension. He didn't like the swing arms on the back end and put in a DD on rear end. We dropped the Chevy in it, which was easy to do because the big Mercedes engine that was in there was actually heavier than the Chevy V8. So with that project done, they made three identical chassis based on that 300 SL. Hmm. He said, I've bought one of those chassis. You know, he made a $1 deal, made a deal, bought it from Chevrolet Engineering for $1. Wow. And that gave us the hard points that we were going to work on. So I knew what the wheelbase was, the tread and everything. And from that point, I designed the Stingray Racer. And Bill would come in, of course, every couple of days and oversee what we were doing. But I laid down the lines, but it's really Bill Mitchell's idea and theme and everything that directed the whole thing. And it was an incredible experience working with Mitchell to do that car. When he first started out, he said, we're going to do this as a coupe because we need to do it to compete as a coupe with Ford. So the car started out as a coupe. And then about, oh, I'd say halfway through the project, management discovered that this project was going on downstairs. He'd risk his whole reputation and going against top management to do this. I guess they sat down and gave him a real talking to <laughs> and said, okay, if you're going to continue on this, if you want to do this, you can build this car and finish it, but you cannot put the Chevrolet name on it and you cannot put the Corvette name on it. And you have to finance all the rest of it on your own, out of your own pocket. Wow. And he said, if you want to do that, we'll let you finish it. And he said, okay. And he put up the bucks to do it. And we continued on. So he came back down. He said, guys, I don't have enough money to do the complete coupe because it's about three times the cost to do a coupe over a roadster, you know, with all the doors closing and the windows and all that kind of stuff. Right. So the XB87 became a roadster instead of a coupe. So all that I designed in the coupe was taken off and turned it into a roadster. And it came to be a beautiful roadster. Absolutely. So that's the way we finished it. So that car got finished up to a point where it was really looking pretty spectacular. At that point, he had already designed a special studio upstairs where he could do his own private stuff. And the car was taken out of the advanced research design where I was, and it was taken upstairs. And at that point, he put Larry Shinoda and a guy named Tony Lapine, 
who were his two prime advanced design guys that he worked with a lot. Tony Lapine eventually left General Motors and went to work as the head designer for Porsche, where he stayed for some 30 years and had a Porsche. And of course, Larry finished the car up. But before Tony left, once we had shown that car, it raced for the first time back east, and it got just such tremendous publicity, and there was such excitement in the press on it that he was able to turn management's whole thinking around, and they accepted the fact that the Corvette was going to go and they said, okay, Bill, go ahead and finish the car up. So the car went back into coupe form, and that was finished up by Larry and Tony, and they designed the actual production car. So I did the concept car, and they did the production version. And that's really how the whole thing got done. And that is what we know now as the new C2 1963 split-window Corvette. Isn't that right, Peter? Right. Yep. Although it started in 57, it took that long to go through all of these different stages to become that car. And of course, it's become an iconic design. And as a result of Bill Mitchell's dedication to the project and the great guys that worked on it. Thank you, Bill Mitchell. Otherwise, we would have never had a Corvette past that time. And I've said this many times, Peter, on the podcast, that the 63 split window was what really got me in as a youngster into the world of Corvette. That's when I stood up and noticed, wow, that's a great-looking car. Talk about the story, because Zora hated the split window and the spine down the middle, and that's one of the reasons why it's only a one-year car, isn't it? That's correct. When I designed the car originally, it had a big single rear glass in it. Bill Mitchell came in one day and he talked to the clay modelers. The designers were not allowed to work on the clay. That was a union split there. Oh, These guys were extremely talented. He came over and he talked to the lead model there and he says, I want you to take your knife. He said, I want you to design a line right down the middle of the back end of that glass. And then we're going to split that down and split that back window. Bill had a great love of of automotive design. Of course, he knew all history and would have been great. And one of the great designs that first started that split window idea was the Bugatti 57 SC, a car called Atlantique. Yes. The car was all made out of magnesium in those days, which could not be easily welded. So they would form the panels up and to put them together, they would rivet them down the center. The center point where it came together on it was this spine that came down the back of the Atlantique, and it was all riveted together, and that's why the window was split on that car. And Bill had a love for that car, and he wanted to make an homage to that split window that had been done on the Atlantique, and that's what we did. We put that in there and modeled it all up, and it was looking great, and Bill was very much in approval of it until (laughs) Zora came in. And, of course, Zora worked for Chevrolet Engineering. Right. This car, of course, belonged almost personally to Bill Mitchell because he was putting his own money into it. At that time, Chevrolet Engineering had no say in it. It was Bill's personal car. (laughs) And Zora absolutely went ballistic when he saw that. He said, that's a stupid idea. You won't be able to see out of the back end. It's complicated. It's going to cost too much more money to do it. And he says, you know, we've got to take that out of there. And, I mean, they got into a major screaming match in the studio over the thing. And the bottom line was Mitchell said, well, you're out of here and you don't have any more input. And he kicked Zora out of the studio and wouldn't let him come back in. Wow. So, of course, Zora went to Ed Cole, who was the head of Chevrolet at that time, and said, look, they're doing this car over there that's going to be a Chevrolet. And we can't do this because it's just not the correct thing to do. 
So Ed Kill came over, looked at the thing, and realized what the situation was with Mitchell. Right. And it was a spectacular design. So, you know, he sat them both down and said, okay, this is what we're going to do. Bill, you're going to get your split window, but you're only going to do it for one year. And at that point after that, if we continue with the car, we'll make it a single window. So Zorro will get his way. So that's the way the problem was resolved. Oh, my gosh. And that's why it's a one-year car, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Amazing. Now, Kirk Benyon, the current exterior designer of the Corvette, says your 59 Stingray design, and Stingray is two words, by the way, was the most iconic design ever for the Corvette. And the pictures of it still line the hallways at General Motors today. Isn't that right, Peter? Absolutely. Even the XP87 is kept there. It's kept at the Heritage Museum, but sometimes it's in the hall. But it's always used as an icon and something to remind people of where the Corvette came from. came from Bill Mitchell, and that's his whole spirit and passion of that car is embodied in the XP87. You know, I'm so proud of that car, and having been a part of it has just been great. But the fact that it affected so many young designers like Kirk, who is now heading up design at Chevrolet there on the Corvette program with Tom Peters, what an honor for a guy like that to say that he was inspired by it. You know, it's great. Absolutely. And also, Ed Wellborn says that your design is more than just a car. It embodies the, all the passion and emotion of GM design. He says your design has had an influence on every single Corvette design thereafter. And I absolutely agree with him a million percent. Well, you know, the car would not have been saved if it hadn't have been for Ed Wellborn. Ed Wellborn came in there and became the head of uh, GM Design. And, of course, he loved that car. Again, it influenced him as well. But in all the years from the time it had been finished up in 1959 was the first time we raced it. It had been shown numerous times or whatever, and it was getting pretty tired looking. So one of the first things that Ed Wellborn did when he became head of GM Design is he had the car completely taken apart and rebuilt and restored back to its original condition, which is in today and looks spectacular. But again, a top designer saved that car, and it became the icon that it is today. Thank goodness for that. I, th those kind of cars stand the test of time. They're part of Corvette history, and they should be redone and put back to original form and kept forever and ever. Yep. What a great story, Peter. What a great story. Let's take another break real quick, and then when we come back for segment three, we're going to talk about some of the other things that you've done. Righty. You're listening to Corvette Today. If you're looking for top quality aftermarket parts for your C2 through C7, and especially your new C8 Corvette, Look no further than Apsis USA. We are a leader in aftermarket parts, especially parts made in carbon fiber. Whether it's for your interior, exterior, or engine bay, Apsis USA can custom make nearly any part you want in leather, carbon fiber, or carbon flash. Plus, we have custom parts for your new C8 Corvette that no other company has. Visit our website at apsisusa.com or call toll-free at 1-800-68-APSIS. That's 1-800-682-7747. Call and get the special Corvette Today discount of 10% off your order. We'll help you customize your Corvette to give it that one-of-a-kind look. So when you want the best, look to the leader in aftermarket interior, exterior, and engine bay parts for your Corvette. APSIS USA at APSISUSA.com. Don't forget, call today and get your 10% discount when you mention the Corvette Today podcast. 
VetFinders.com is the Internet's original Corvette classified ads website with classified ads starting at just $25. And every ad runs until your Corvette is sold. If you're in the market for a Corvette, VetFinders.com has over 500 Corvettes for sale from all around the USA and Canada and covering all eight generations. Visit VetFinders.com, the Internet's destination for buying and selling Corvettes. That's V-E-T-T-E Finders.com. And now, back to Corvette Today with your host and my husband, Steve Garrett. Hey, thanks for listening to Corvette Today. I'm your host, Steve Garrett. My special, special guest today is legendary Corvette Stingray designer, Peter Brock. In the third segment, we're going to talk about some other things that Peter has done since his days at General Motors. Peter, you've also designed the world championship winning Daytona Cobra for Carroll Shelby. You were his first paid employee, as a matter of fact. Talk about your work with Carol and the interaction that you had with him. Well, you know, working with Carol was, again, here we've got another great character in American automotive history, you know, whether it be Harley Earl or Bill Mitchell or Zora Duntoff, Carol Shelby is right up there. That group of people that have helped change American automotive design. And Carol was an incredibly charismatic guy who had the idea before most Americans, he went over to Europe and drove over there and won Le Mans driving for Aston Martin and came back with the idea of, of building his own automobile under his own name, which he eventually did with the help of the AC cars. In England, they built the chassis and those were sent over here and we put the Ford V8 in with our plant here in Venice, California. That was the beginning of the Cobra. And that car was absolutely changed the whole American idea of a high-performance automobile because prior to that point, the Corvettes had absolutely ruled American racing. They were the big V8 engine cars. So it was rather unusual that I had gone to work for Carroll. I had actually gone to work with him to run his driving school for him as his first employee. That was the first thing that we did together. And I ran that school for a while. And then, of course, as we expanded, I came back in and spent more time in the office as well, doing a lot of design work, which was everything from business cards to stationery to T-shirts to brochures, you know, whatever needed to be done. Wow. Because we were a very small group. We were primarily, a, you know, a handful of mechanics and a couple of secretaries. So I pretty much created this image of the Shelby image for Carol. I mean, there was nobody there that did that kind of work. And I was perfectly free to do whatever I wanted to do. And he was pleased with it. And we got along great. And that was one of the great things of working for Shelby is that if he could see that you were doing something that was fine for the company, he didn't micromanage it. He was a big picture guy right? and just let you do whatever you wanted. And if you came up with something he liked, he'd say, well, fine, we're going to do it and make it. And it was great because we didn't have any board of directors or any consensus or anything that had to be done. He just said, okay, that's it. We'll do it. So that was my experience of working with Carol is that he was a guy that got stuff done right away. Well, let me go back a little bit. The first time that the Stingray Corvette was shown to the American public was debuted in October of 1962 at Riverside Raceway. This was the end of the season, October. So the car had not yet been homologated by the SCCA as a production car so that it could not race in the race against all the other Corvettes for points or anything. But the organizers realized what an important thing this was, that the car was going to debut at the race at Riverside. They just said, okay, we're going to enter the car as an XT, which meant experimental production. 
So the interesting thing was is that Carol's first Cobra was finished at the same time, and it also was in the same position, not having been homologated. Mm -hmm. But the two cars were going to meet for the first time on Riverside Raceway. So here is the car that I designed on one side and the company that I was working for on the other. So I had a chance to see both of the cars that I was involved in meet head-to-head for the first time in October 62. And, of course, the Corvette ended up winning the race because the Cobra broke. At the green flag, the Cobra just disappeared. It was so fast. It was just way faster than all of the Corvettes. But it halfway through the race, it broke a rear subaxle and didn't finish, and the Corvette won the race. Wow. Of course, Zora was there and saw this, and he realized it instantly. He'd already been superseded, so he went back to Detroit and began working on a car that we now know was the Grand Sport. And they made a few of those. And then Carol, of course, we took it back to our place. And our head engineer was a guy that was just absolutely brilliant. And the main guy that made Shelby successful, a guy named Phil Remington, took over the development of the Cobra and went through every mechanical part on that car and figured out what was made of inferior materials or whatever and changed it, including those stub axles. And from that point on, the car was absolutely unbeatable in American racing. So by the end of 1963, which was our first real season, because the end of October was pretty much the end of that season. So the next season, 1963, became the first professional racing series under the SCCA called the United States Road Racing Championship. And so we entered the Covers in those events. And we had, you know, all the top guys driving. And we had Dan Gurney driving. We had David McDonald driving, of course, and, of course, Ken Miles. So we just absolutely ran roughshod over all the Corvettes. And we won the United States Road Racing Championship that first year in 1963. And it was a huge change because up until that point, the Corvette had been the top dog. And now all of a sudden, the Cobra was the fastest car. So Carroll at that point decided he wanted to take the car and go to Europe with it and race over there and show the Europeans what an American car could do. The only problem was is that as well-suited as the Cobra Roadster was for the American tracks, which averaged about two and a half miles in length, to go to Europe, the car was totally outclassed because two and a half miles is about the length of the back straight at Le Mans. And at that point, the car just didn't have the top end. Hmm. You know, in the United States, when we raced over here, we'd seldom get it over 140 miles an hour because the tracks are so short. But in going to Europe, you had to have a car that had to run at least 180 miles an hour if you were going to even think of being competitive. So there was no way that the Cobra Roadster was going to be competitive. And I knew that. Carol knew it, and he just didn't know what the heck we were going to do with it because we were getting to the limit of the amount of horsepower we could get out of the engine at that time, which was 385 horsepower. And I explained to Carol, I said, you know, the secret's going to be in the aerodynamics on this car. And he said, yeah, yeah, we've already done that. We put a roof on the Cobra Roadster last year when we ran it at Le Mans. It didn't really make any difference. And I said, the problem is you didn't have the aerodynamics correct on it. And he said, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, as a student of history, I know that the Germans had figured this all out about 1937 and 38, and had come up with a completely different shape for their fastest automobiles. And I said, they aren't like anything you've ever seen, but if you'll allow me to design a new body for the Cobra Roadster, I think I can put that car up on the front row for you. 
And he said, well, why don't you draw it up and we'll present it to our team, which is head up with Phil Remington, our chief engineer, and all the guys in the shop and everything. So I drew the car up and made a presentation to the guys, and it was absolutely silent. They looked at what I'd drawn up, and they just said, that's the dumbest-looking car we've ever seen in our life. You know, that chopped-off tail and the back end and the flat roof line. Right. Said, that'll never go. And they all told through Phil Rillington, you know, they told Carol, hey, you know, the kid, because I was the youngest guy in the shop at that time. I think I was about 25 by then. They all explained to him that it wasn't going to work and that he was wasting his time. Luckily, we had Ken Miles working for us as our chief development driver. And, of course, he'd raced over in Europe quite a bit. And he'd seen what the Germans could do and knew a little bit about the back history. And he said, you know, the kid kind of knows what he's talking about. (laughs) Why don't you just let him finish drawing the car up and I'll help him. And we'll make a three-dimensional mock-up of the car out of plywood and take a look at it then and see what you think. So Carol said, okay. And Phil Remington says, okay, I don't want any of that crap in my part of the shop. You guys can go work over there. So Ken Miles and myself and a young mechanic out of New Zealand named John Olson built the whole three-quarter thing out of three-quarter-inch plywood, which became the buck over which to form the aluminum. That's what we were doing. We got this whole car done and sent it off. Carol said, well, okay. So we sent it off to a place called Cal Metal Shape in Southern California, and they formed all the big aluminum exterior panels on there, which could be all clamped on. And when that was all clamped on and we brought it back to the shop, a couple of the other guys looked at it and said, you know, I think that's looking pretty good. We'll put our own time in on it and help you guys finish it up. So there was still this big division in the shop on whether the car was going to work or it wasn't going to work. So anywhere, about half a dozen of us finished the whole car up, and we took it out to Riverside Raceway on February 1st of 1964. Ken Miles got in the car for the first time, and underneath the car was exactly the same as the Cobra Roadster because it had to be under the rules, it had to be built on the Cobra Roadster chassis. And he went out there, and he broke the lap record by three and a half seconds. Wow. And we got the speed up to 180 miles an hour with it, and this is with short course gearing. So we knew right then we had a competitive car. So he didn't even finish the test. He was so excited, he went back to the phone and called Carol long distance back down to the shop and told him what had gone on. And, of course, Carol was absolutely blown away that this whole thing had worked. So he went downstairs and told the whole crew to clean off the center of the shop. The guys were coming back from Riverside, and he didn't want to hear any more about it. We were going to finish that car up and go to Daytona with it. Wow. And so that's where the name came from. The guys called it the Daytona car. And we built that car and got it all finished up in 90 days and took it to Daytona. Oh, my gosh. And, of course, it ran away from everything down there. It was so fast. It just obliterated the Ferraris. Amazing. That was the development of the Cobra. Peter, did the movie Ford versus Ferrari do an accurate depiction of Ken Miles and Carroll Shelby in the movie? Unfortunately, it wasn't. Uh, It was a great, great theatrical piece. But all that thing about Ken and Carol getting in a fight was absolutely 100% wrong. If anybody had great respect for Miles, it was Shelby. Mutual respect, both, and even though they did things different ways. The right part of it was, and unfortunately, this didn't get brought out enough with the character that played Ken Miles. The character that played Phil Rankton as well didn't get the credit that they should have. 
But those two men were the people that really made Shelby American as successful as it was, one on a driving standpoint with Ken and one from an engineering standpoint on Phil Remington. Those two guys led the crew that did it under Carol's direction. It was wonderful to watch them both work and what they did and what they contributed. That was really minimalized in the movie, but had they done the real story, it would have been even a greater story. But it was great because it was simple and it was easy for the public to understand and probably made a lot of people interested in what Carol Shelby had created. And then if you'll take the time to go on to Netflix and look up a picture called The Carol Shelby Story, which was done by Adam Carolla, you'll see what the real story is. And it's much, much closer to the truth. So your listeners could enjoy that and really find out what it is and then compare it to the Hollywood production. I'm going to be watching that tonight, my friend. <laughs> All right. Talk about Brock Racing Enterprises. This is an entity that you did after all that was done. Talk about what Brock Racing Enterprises does. Actually, the success of my work with the Cobra was actually the demise of my working for Shelby because we were so successful with the Daytona Cobra. Everybody knows about how important it was in this racing against Ferrari. But at the same time, we were also racing against Ford because Ford had developed a new car called the GT40 at that time. Right. So in 1964, when we first began racing the Daytona, we were racing to beat Ferrari. And of course, it was Ford's goal to do the same thing with the GT40. So during the whole racing season of 1964, every time the GT40 would go out, it would either crash or wouldn't finish or whatever. And they didn't finish one race. And we won practically every event and came within a couple of points of winning the world championship in that first year. So Henry Ford could see the value of what Shelby had done, what his team had done, actually, because that was the real value on the Shelby thing was his team. He told his minions that we were going to take over Shelby American and put the entire budget to develop the GT40 under Carroll Shelby. And that's what they did. But part of the contract was that the entire Cobra program would be phased out. There would be no more development on that. Ken Miles was absolutely blown away that that was going to happen because he knew what a successful car we had in the Daytona. So he started building up one with the latest big brakes on it, all the trick stuff that we had on the GT40 and was planning on running a comparison test between the GT40 and the Daytona because he knew the Daytona would be faster. And, of course, that was discovered, and they told him, can't do that. Sorry, we're done with Cobras. So that was the end of the program, and then everything was put on to the GT40. And that was basically the movie that you saw was the whole development of that 1965 season. So there were no Daytona Cobras in that part of the film. At that point, I left Shelby's because there was no point in me because they were bringing in all of their own engineering and everything for the GT40. And it was very interesting because during that period, the guys asked me, said, hey, you know, we're going to be doing this GT40 car. What do you think? And I said, well, it's not going to work. And they said, well, God, they spent millions of dollars and have all these top engineers. And I said, well, they don't understand the aerodynamics of making the car work. So I'll tell you right now, it's not going to. So the very first time the two cars competed against each other was at the Le Mans test trials in 1964 at Le Mans. And both of the GT40s crashed from aerodynamic instability, and we set the fastest lap time with the Daytona Cobra. Wow. Amazing. Yep. 
That's pretty cool. And also, you were inducted in 2017 into the National Corvette Museum Hall of Fame. That had to be a huge honor for you. Well, the real honor was to be there with Kirk Binion, of course, who was the guy that headed up all the current design of the Chevrolet stuff and to be recognized by the Corvette Museum for my contribution, which is obviously important. But, you know, I look at all the guys that were important that, that got that thing done, you know, Zora, Bill Mitchell, to get those cars built. It was just an amazing thing to work with all the talent that I had at GM to get that car built and to go on and then work with Larry, of course, and Tony Lapine on the 63 which became basically the icon that we all know today. The recognition for the Corvette Club was fabulous. Peter, you became and created the largest hang glider company in the whole world. <laughs> that is so off the beaten path. Talk a little bit about your hang glider company. Well, hang gliding is a sport that I participated in for several years and probably the most exciting and thrilling thing that I've ever done in my whole life. And it came about just per chance. I was driving by a huge sand dune that had been built. My shop was in El Segundo, and this was right on the south side of the LAX runway out the beach. The city had decided to put in a huge power plant out there on the coast. And to do that, they had to dig out this huge pit so they could put in the foundation for building this power plant. And it became this giant sand dune. It was just huge, huge sand dune on the beach there. Huh. And at the same time, a guy named Francis Regalo had designed a flex-wing glider that was originally designed to bring the capsules back from space. So when they'd enter our atmosphere on the outside, it would deploy, and then this wing would come out, and it would guide this capsule down. Instead of a parachute, they could control where it was going to go. So from the development of that particular wing, several guys actually started in Australia, came out with an idea of how to build this thing. And they started out building these little hang gliders to tow behind a boat on a lake. That idea was sort of was picked up over here in California. And instead of towing them behind boats, we started running off of sand dunes and having a lot of fun with it because you could get a glide 50, 100 yards. And you were only six to eight feet above the sand because the, the glide ratio was just about the same as the angle on the sand dune. So I was driving by one day and saw these guys. And this is a, a bunch of hippies, really, at the time, you know, and, and their gliders were all made out of bamboo and visqueen plastic and duct tape. <laughs> and it was lots of fun. You know, you could haul this thing up to the top of the sand dune, run off. If you got it right, you'd get a real perfect glide. You'd go maybe 100 yards all the way down to the coast, you know, into the water. Wow. And it was a real thrill. So. I stopped and watched these guys and walked up there. I said, where did all this come from? And they gave me a you know, little background on it. And they, and they said, well, you got to try this. And I said, well, how, how does it work? You know. So they explained it all to me. And I watched them take off and do that a couple of times. They hauled it all the way up the hill and hooked me up to do this thing and said, okay, now you run off here. And as soon as you get going down, you know, you have to, the control bar. If you push it forward, it'll go up. You pull it in, you'll go down. That's how you balance it. Huh. So I got it all done, and I ran off there, and I made this beautiful flight all the way down to the water. I got down to the butter. I said, this has got to be more fun than anything <laughs> I've ever done in my life. So uh, I decided I was going to build my own hang glider. And, you know, all I thought about doing was, you know, running it off the sand dunes there. Right. 
And the funny thing was, is that I looked at how crude these things were, how they were all put together. And I said, you know, we can do better than that. And I had a facility because we were building race cars in the shop. So I made a handful of little hardware on how you could put together a hang glider kit. So you get these aluminum tubes and put them all together and use my hardware and we'd make a sale for it. So I went down there and built this whole thing up. It just blew everybody away because it was so beautifully finished. And then I said, well, here's the kit, you know, all these little parts and pieces. You guys can buy that and build your own gliders. And everybody said, God, that's really great. Man, we want to do that. You know, I said, and how much is the kit? I said, six, seven dollars. Six or seven dollars. Boy, what a ripoff, you know. <laughs> so that's the way we started. I couldn't sell it at all because the hippies wouldn't put six or seven dollars into hardware. So I started building gliders on my own and everybody wanted to buy gliders. And then two or three other companies started building gliders as well. And, and by then, we were taking them up into the mountains and flying them. And then we started going out to Elsinore and flying off the mountain there. And we were up at 1,000 feet and then 2,000 feet. And then pretty soon, we started getting into thermals and were able to climb. Over the years, it developed that we got the gliders to be able to soar to catch the thermals and climb. We ended up winning the world championship six times in a row for cross-country flying. Oh, my gosh. And we were flying 300 miles, and we are flying at altitudes of 15,000 feet. Amazing. What an incredible story, Peter. What a transition from cars to hang gliders. That's amazing. Oh, and, and really fun, really fun. Oh, my gosh. I'd love to do that sometime. I see them pull behind boats, and I keep saying to my wife, I want to do that. Well, if you come out here, I can hook you up with a guy that will take you on a tandem flight. That would be perfect. <laughs> yep. <laughs> In closing, Peter, I know that you have an iconic book in the world of Corvette called Corvette Stingray. And again, Stingray is two words. Yep. The Genesis of an American Icon. I've got this book. It is a must-have for any Corvette enthusiast. Talk about the book real quick and where people can purchase it. Well, you can purchase the book from us here at bre.com. Just go onto your computer and type that up, either Peter Brock or info at bre.com, and that will take you into our website, and you can be able to order the books there. We have got several different books that we sell, but that's one of my favorites, and it tells that whole story on the development of the Corvette Stingray and that whole story. It's, it's a great book. Anybody that's, that loves cars, it's a really fine one. It makes a great gift for Christmas for anybody that you know that loves cars. Yes. Just go to Google the name Peter Brock slash Corvette, and that information will come there, there as well. That sounds good. Peter, if someone wanted to get in touch with you, what is your email address? How can they reach you? They can reach us at, uh, it's a little complicated there. It's like Scribble, S-C-R-I-B-B-L-E. That's like a child does Scribble. And then the word click on top of that is one word. So it's scribble click at, and it's B-R-E, which is uh, initials for Brock Racing Enterprises, the numeral two, and then dot net. So scribble click at B-R-E two dot net. Perfect. Peter, thank you so much for your time today. The stories are absolutely phenomenal. I appreciate you being a guest on Corvette today. Well, been great, Steve. I look forward to hearing the show. Ladies and gentlemen, the legendary Corvette treasure, Mr. Peter Brock. And thanks once again to our flagship sponsors of Corvette today, Hall Tech Systems. Don't forget, go to their website at halltechsystems.com or call 262-965-4300 and use the code CT11 to get 11% off your purchase. Also, APSIS USA. Call APSIS USA or go online at APSIS USA and get a 10% discount when you mention Corvette today. 
You've been listening to Corvette Today with Steve Garrett. If you'd like to contact Steve with any thoughts on the podcast or ideas for guests on Corvette Today, you can email him at stevegarrettdj at gmail.com. That's stevegarrettdj at gmail.com. Garrett has two R's and two T's. Or connect with Steve on social media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram using at stevegarrettdj. Thanks again for listening to Corvette Today.